Hello everyone, welcome aboard. This episode this week is with Deborah McNamara. She is a trusted and experienced clinical counsellor and has been for over 25 years in mental health and educational settings, as well as private practice. She serves as a leading international expert who provides counselling and educational services to support parents, professionals and educators. She is also a professional speaker who has presented to the United Nations and the Dalai Lama Centre for Peace and Education. The author of a few books, Rest, Play, Grow, a children's book called The Sorry Plane, and her latest book, which is all of what the podcast is about, called Nourish, Connection, Food and Caring for Our Kids in brackets, and everyone else we love. What did you think of it, Olga? It's one of those conversations that's just bound to change the way you think about food and our everyday job of feeding our kids, which is not always the easiest. So thank you, Deborah. Welcome. Thank you for your book, Nourished. One of my absolute favourite books. And, and we were thinking about, quote I use often is, um, I think it's from Plato, says you can find out more about someone in an hour of play than a lifetime of conversation. And it almost feels like what you've done with this book is is similar thing, but with subjecting with food and relationship, how food is all about relationship. And everywhere you go, is, um, when you find books on food, it's, it's all about nutritional value or behavior or for someone who's not read the book could you just start by telling us more about that kind of link between the food and relationship well thanks joe that's high praise from uh, from you in terms of your delight for the book and olga thank you so much for having me here how did the book come to be well the book is definitely about how food and relationships come together how they've come apart and how we need to reclaim that relationship again and it's something that we're quite blind to because we've just it's just been inculcated for so many decades now. Um, we've inherited food practices uh, from our parents and so on and so forth that have actually torn food and relationships apart. And it's not really just about eating at a table, eating together. You can eat beside someone and there can be no togetherness. There's lots of family meals where a sense of cohesiveness is absent. And so it's not as simple as a, a prescription here, which is where we usually end up, well, eat family meals together. Yeah, but that's not the story. There's actually a, a deeper, be more beautiful love story here that I've retold through developmental and relational science. But, you know, full honesty and disclosure is I actually got to this topic because I was struggling as a parent with my two to three year old, I think she was about three. And this idea of picky eating and, you know, what, what am I going to do and getting frustrated. And so here I was working with families and teaching about relationships. And I was creating an attachment problem with my daughter through food. And I thought, what are you doing? How is this happening? One daughter ate really well and there wasn't a problem. And my other one, uh, there was resistance, there was opposition, there was counter will. I'm just like, I'm going backwards. And so I turned to, to my mentor. Uh, Gordon Newfeld, where I was doing a postdoc at a time with him, and I got to sit with him and ask him some questions, and that's how I opened up the book. He didn't give me any answers, and I had to uh, go and find them for myself. I said to him recently, I bet you never thought I was going to write a book when you didn't answer my question. Yeah. <laughs> he said, no, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I love that story in the book when you talk about the daughter was just eating uh, cheese or bread, I think, and he said, throw in some cheese and wine there and you've got yourself a lovely meal. <laughs> yeah, he was very cheeky. He's like, yeah, it's a perfect meal. I was very upset, though. I'm like, you know, vegetables is important and nutrition is important. Don't make a mockery out of how important nutrition is. Nutrition is important. Uh, however, we were never meant to share so much nutritional information with our children 
And when we do, we court them in being in charge of their food and their health and their well-being, and we make food work. Food is never meant to be work. It's meant to be enjoyment. It's meant to be pleasure. But as parents, we do a lot of work around food. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Uh, and we're working hard to think about nutrition, all those things. And that's wonderful. But we weren't meant to make our children responsible for such things. And so that's part of our undoing is our children feel far too much uh, here, know too much. Uh, and, uh, you know, my parents used to tell me, you know, eat your carrots or you go blind. I mean, imagine being six. I've got to eat carrots so I don't lose my vision, right? It's just like, it's crazy the kind of stuff that we say that's so coercive around food. You never look at a carrot the same way again. I think we say here in England that RAF pilots used to eat carrots to see better. Now that's something to aspire to, right? If you put it like that. But that's become part of the yeah. national curriculum as well. Primary school children get lessons in mm -hmm what's healthy and what's not mm -hmm. and they're very much invited to mm -hmm. be in charge of their food choices yeah and that that is the case around uh in north america as well uh in canada the us uh for sure uh, this practice is uh part and partial of education now and the challenge with that is that it assumes that the knowledge for well-being has to exist inside of the child It makes it about work. And when you look at the research, there is actually no efficacy to it. It actually doesn't change mm -hmm. food habits. Uh, it doesn't change the nature of what they're eating. Uh, just informing them about what's good or bad doesn't actually make a difference. So we spend tons of money on something that actually doesn't make a difference. What does make a difference? Relationship. Having someone that you're connected to take the lead on food. There's some play. There's an element of connection. Uh, and children also involved in experiential ways of uh, learning about their food through cooking and growing food and picking and, you know, playing with their food, tasting and uh, getting to have some autonomy around it. Those types of things, those experiential um, activities actually lead to better food choices and habits, but it's done invisibly. Mm -hmm. hmm. You know, that there's a story I have around that as well. Have you heard of Jamie Oliver? Yes, I love Jamie yeah. Oliver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's great. Did loads of good work around school meals here, but and he had yeah. he's had lots of programs. And on one of them, I always remember he got a load of kids together and showed them what went into the uh, chicken nugget, and there was all this nasty stuff. And they were looking at it, and they were, you know, they're like, and disgusting, nasty. And then the la his last thing, he was hoping, and he said, and this is what it looks like at the end. And he showed them a perfect chicken nugget, and they all went, yeah, chicken nugget, and yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It. They can understand everything, but they can't. They can't make those decisions. No, and you also have to realize that a lot of food is formulated to taste really good, mm. and we're pleasure seekers as well. You can, as a parent, you're trying to provide the best food that you can for your child. This is a real tension that I had to wrestle with. Is that I believe parents are doing the best they can with nutrition. In fact, a study came out in North America and said that when they surveyed over a thousand parents. They said 87% of them are, were really clear on what food they should be feeding their kids. They had a lot of information. They felt the what part was actually really clear. So I believe parents are going to do the best with the resources they have. With the prices of food right now, especially in my neck of the woods, you know, a head of lettuce being $7, it's like, wow, families are going to try to do what they can. But where I thought the, the research was really interesting is that over 70% of parents in that same survey said what they were confused by or didn't know was how 
to feed their kids in terms of getting them to eat nutritious meals, getting them to try different foods and the variety, being open to these experiences. That's where parents said, we don't know how to do this. And that's when you realize where the breakdown has come because the how part of eating is meant to happen in the context of caring relationships. It's relationship that makes you receptive to receive what someone is giving you to taking good care of you. Kids weren't meant to learn or eat or follow just about anybody. They follow the people they're attached to. And so of course, this also happens in feeding. But we treat food as fuel. We don't look at relationship. We think kids should just take stuff from whoever offers it because it's nutritious, it's good for you. That's what the medical community tells you or you know, that's what whoever's telling you is the best food to eat. Uh, it doesn't quite work that way with kids. <laughs> they learn from people uh, and they follow people they're attached to. So we gotta we gotta go back to attachment. So what what is the vision? What would a family where a healthy, happy eater is growing look like? And what would it look like at a school, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, the key principle always is to have an adult assume responsibility for the caretaking, to take responsibility for the food how it's delivered, where it's delivered. Uh, a child, if you follow uh, Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility, which is a wonderful uh, script for eating, is that, you know, so the adult takes the lead on such matters. The uh, child is responsible for what they want to eat and how much, trusting that there's an autonomous being here who can pay attention to their cues for hunger. Uh, that isn't always the case, uh, of course. If a child's very emotionally stirred up, they can't always feel their cues for hunger, which is part of the challenge. But generally speaking, we want food to be delivered in the, by someone who's taking responsibility for that. I will take care of you, and this is what it looks like. The second part would be, do we have a relational context? Do we have a, a gathering place? Do we have some sort of uh, symbol that we're going into a place of rest where we're going to eat? It's not about work, it's about connection, and it's about food. So that we're pairing food and relationship together. Nutrition isn't just fuel here. Food isn't just something that you need to get your body busy so it can focus and learn or keep your body strong. It's, it's about connection. It's about a gift. It's about something that's shared with us. It's an invitation to say, um, you know, we're just going to be together for a bit, take a break, and we're going to be together and eat. And so the context is really important. And someone taking the lead on the food is really important. Those two are cornerstones. And then doing it repeatedly, having some ritual and routine to it, so that someone can, you know, anticipate it. your body and your, you know, your body starts to know when it's hungry, if you get into that routine, uh, you know, kids will start to say, is it, you know, lunchtime yet, you can you can look up and you're like, you're almost on the money, because your, your tummy starts to anticipate. Uh, this time of rest and uh, being together. So those would be the key things. Responsibility, the relational context, and having some uh, ritual and routine to it. And you know the responsibility, there's something I noticed about in me. I don't know where this came from really. I always catch myself saying, okay, what do you want? Or, <laughs> or offer a choice. And sometimes I stop myself. I make sure it's off played for like half an hour. And I'll be conscious, so I know what I'm doing, and I just go and get something and just go give it to them without saying anything and just put it and they just it just goes in without they just take it very naturally but when I'm in that place okay what do you want and then as soon as I've done it I realize go oh I've set myself up here for for trouble but it just happens so naturally I don't know I wonder where that's that's come from well I actually would see it differently I think what's most natural is how you caught yourself mm. I think what you were replaying is something that wasn't natural 
I think it was your instincts that stopped you there. And that's what I'm curious about is what were the instincts and emotions that caught you there that said, no, I'm not going to ask them. What was that about? Because that's the natural place from which we're meant to feed. Reading the book and learning what we've done as well, that's helped. But I wonder if I hadn't been aware of some of the stuff that I've learned that I would be, I would be catching myself. I would just be getting into the frustrations or the battles. Or I would just mm-hmm. be going almost blind. Mm-hmm. I think that's the cultural piece, right? That's the cultural yeah. piece where we're looking around and saying, what's out there? This is the practices we've inherited from our own upbringing and probably our parents' own experiences as well. So this is generational. Yeah, we go to the supermarket and there's just choice yeah. everywhere. It's just passing yeah. that on. Whereas I invite people to play with this as well, just to go and just produce something without saying anything and just see yeah. the difference. Because it's so huge Yeah, but I love the shift. And I would say the shift in you is the natural position. Hold on a second. I'm going to be responsible here. I'm the adult. Look at what I can provide. I'm stepping into my beautiful provider role. That is the natural position. It's the fact that we've gotten, that has gotten so buried under practices that have become normalized which we don't question we're not critical about you know it's interesting i'm going to new zealand in a bit for a, uh, some speaking in australia new zealand and one of my friends in new zealand or colleagues she said are you okay with seafood uh, for dinner because my husband's going to go out uh, diving and get and sometimes he finds this or this or this would you be okay with whatever and i'm like why does this feel unusual it's like because it's like it's whatever we're yeah. the the ocean is going to offer us today whatever is going to you know, be taken uh, from this beautiful place to offer up themselves uh, for our well-being. And so it's like, yeah, I will generously accept this beautiful gift, whatever that might look like. It's not going to be just about the food. It's the invitation. It's from where it came from. I'm eating off the land. I'm, I'm part of the land. Uh, as she talks this way, I feel so connected. I already feel quite full from that whole invitation. My husband's going to go diving to take from the yeah. ocean something for our celebration and our trip. And I'm like, can you imagine getting your food or being taken care of this way? Like, how does that shift? Food is a gift. How does that shift that sense that someone's providing for me and Mother Nature's providing for me? It's profound. You realize how much we've lost in seeing food as fuel. Food is about relationship, your history, your place, your people. Uh, it's about so much more. It's so rich. Oh, that is so profound. The parents look after the children, hosts look after guests. And in the larger picture is the land and the ocean look after us humans who probably don't mm-hmm. deserve it anymore. Mm-hmm. But they still do. Mm-hmm. And this is such... This is a connection that is so important to bring to children as opposed to the supermarkets looking after us because they aren't. It's depersonalized. That's a key issue is that when food is personal, it creates a whole set of emotions inside of you. What is the emotion that you feel as I go through that story? The emotion that I already feel and why I feel full is because I feel gratitude. Like I haven't eaten anything and yet I feel tremendous Mm -hmm. gratitude that nature is taking care of me, that my host is taking care of me, uh, that, you know, I'll be there with my sister and we'll be enjoying a meal together with friends. Like, I already feel nourished because I'm being taken care of. It's that personalized sense of caretaking that creates gratitude in the, 
in the person who is receiving and it makes it reciprocal you want to give back you not only to that person but you want to give back to somebody else you want to take care of somebody else too and that's how nature wired us up together in this beautiful cascading care when we feel taken care of we want to take care of others there's reciprocity so that's how children fall in love with with nature that's how they come to know her beautiful gifts that's what makes them want to give back and protect it it's what keeps our kids close to us you stay close to the one who feeds you right that saying don't bite the hand that feeds you no never <laughs> not when they feed you so generously uh, so does it matter what the food is yes I, we're going to pay attention to that but don't forget the love story that's underneath here this is all about relationship and what it does mm -hmm. to us inside and to our emotions and our sense of connection to others the generosity the warmth the invitation we feel Oh, that's the stuff that's truly fulfilling and lasting. Your, your stomach will empty, but those things do not. Those things stay with you all the way to the grave and beyond. And that's what, uh, that's to me what true longevity looks like, is you're always held in somebody's heart for the long term. It makes me think of my, my mother-in-law, is my wife from Colombia. Uh, one of the first times I met her mother-in-law, she's a big food provider. That's her to make she won't even let you in the kitchen, kind of thing. You know, this is her place. And one of the first things she said was, "We'd only just met." She's she said something like, "I'll be waiting for you in the kitchen." Uh, it was a strange thing to hear because I've not heard it before. But it's just what you say, that invitation to I'm going to provide for you when whenever you're ready. Mm -hmm. And it, it was strange at first for me. Mm -hmm. You could take that in a different context, out of context as well, and it could sound completely different. As it's easy to forget the love story in that. Mm -hmm. Well, who wouldn't want to eat in someone's kitchen who said, you know, if you're at someone's house as a guest, I'll wait for you in the kitchen. Like, you're playing out relationship, but through the safest way, through food oftentimes. Well, it's not always safe for everybody, but in, the, in their own heads, yeah. uh, in their hearts. But this sense of, I'm going to be waiting for you when you're hungry, when you need something, uh, when you're ready, I'm here. It's an invitation. You can't we're not meant to force feed each other. We're not meant to force ourselves into relationship. We need a bit of a medium to get us going. And one of the beautiful mediums besides play is food, tea, soup, these universal foods that wherever you go around the world, I would say most cuisines probably have tea or soup. And it's these hot, warm things that bring us together that are part of cuisines. It's not a mistake. It's the most universal. You don't need teeth to eat them. You can be any age. You can have tea and soup usually. <laughs> and it's this bring together. There is warmth in the food and the warmth that gets connected to the relationship. And uh, it's a beautiful invitation. That's what it is at the essence is an invitation. What was hugely validating for me in your book, the idea that we don't necessarily eat when we are hungry. That is a misconception. We can be starving, and a child can be starving, and still not receptive to the food. Yeah. When you get that, you understand it's not so simple as, okay, you're hungry, here you go. Well, first of all, you don't always feel your hunger. Well, why is that? Mm -hmm. Because the body has a capacity to press down on the sensorium. Mm -hmm. So from your physical senses, which would include your satiation and, and how um, full you are or empty you are, uh, when there are emotional things that need to be taken care of, emotional threats, threats to safety, security, connection, 
the brain jumps into gear and says, I need to protect that most of all. I need to focus my attention there most of all. Most of the blood flow, you'll see, uh, a lot of the blood flow goes to the emotional center of the brain. Uh, the brain already consumes about 25% of the body's energy. But as soon as you have an emotional problem on the doorstep, it needs more energy. So it borrows from digestion. You don't feel hungry anymore because the brain is invested in solving this emotional problem of disconnection. And so it's hungry. It's hungry to solve that. And so we don't feel our hunger because hunger is secondary to that. And that's the piece we don't get, which I tackled in the book, was that Maslow, Abraham Maslow, got this absolutely wrong. Abraham Maslow said food came first. No, it didn't. He put love third. What we didn't understand is that Maslow created a hierarchy out of his own psychology. He was a traumatized child. He had uh, incredible abuse from both parents, uh, harbored still to the day he died. And he created a psychology around it, which he put food first. Well, that's not true. Everything happens in the context of relationship. The brain is organized around attachment, the instincts and emotions to keep us close. And so it's a misnomer to think that the brain is going to be able to process and focus on our physical needs when there is something more important at the doorstep, which is our emotion and our attachment needs. There isn't a neuroscientist who studies this area who doesn't say it comes first, mm -hmm. absolute first connection. And this is so huge, and this also was so huge. The generation that that was our parents. Well, if they aren't eating, then they can't be hungry. No, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. And we'll just give them their mm -hmm. dinner for breakfast because it's food. It's valid food. It's mm -hmm. it's got to be eaten. Yeah, there is a you know, how many of us have lost our appetites? when we're under high stress or there's a threat to our loved one. How many kids are forced to eat food at school and yet say they have tummy aches by two o'clock because the tummies aren't digesting mm -hmm. it because they're alarmed and they're not in connection. We can even eat, but the body doesn't even process it. You know, you can get uh, kids who vomit out of anxiety. The body says, no, this is not the time uh, for me. I've got another agenda here and that's about human connection and fixing what is broken. Now that can get stuck and it can be ongoing and you see all sorts of food problems come out of that. When you really trace the roots of tons of food problems, you see that relational problems can quickly become food problems and food problems can quickly become relationship ones. And it's not all about what happens in the home. It's about uh, the stress, the culture we live in, kids going to school, things happening outside the home. That, But as parents are responsible for taking the lead on on feeding and providing. They can come home and, and being bullied at school, but we've got a child who's lost their hunger then, doesn't feel safe. What are we gonna do with that? That becomes our responsibility, right? And how dangerous is it when, when you couple that with, okay, you're responsible for your nutrition, how dangerous is that? It's really dangerous. Uh, if you look at what's happening in social media for many of our teenagers, they're following each other. There's You can find lots of people uh, if you're a teen or a young uh, adult or even, you know, in the middle years, you can find lots of people on the internet who are not much older than you telling you what they eat in a day, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, what's good for you, what's bad for you, why they don't have this entire food group. Kids follow these people on the internet they don't know, that have no vested interest in them, that have 
disordered views around food and possible disordered eating themselves. And so there's this depersonalization, not just to food itself, but to who feeds you. And so if you put matters of food into a child's hand, then that's going to go in any direction it goes. They're going to find substitutes for information. They're going to become less receptive to being taken care of. And not just in food, but in other areas too. That's the thing that we don't realize. It's not like you can parcel out food from learning or uh, your other emotions that you need to be taken care of. It infects the caretaking relationship. And so if you correct it in food, you can actually see the benefits to everything as well, where the child has more receptivity overall uh, to your lead, uh, which is so critical. Yes, I'm just doing the Making Sense of Adolescence course with the Newfold Institute at the moment, and Robin Brooks Sheriff, the course facilitator, who has been on our podcast, uh, there's a wonderful episode with her about parenting our teenagers, and she says, let your teen take responsibility, find those domains they can take over in their life, but don't let it be food. Don't let them feed themselves. As much as possible, you know, and of course, there's always parents who are doing the best they can, single parents, parents who work different shifts and things like that. But we can still take the responsibility when we say, I got this for you. It's in the fridge, throw it together. I thought of, you know, uh, you coming home, here's snacks or whatever. I might not be there. There's ways that we can provide without necessarily being there. But yes, taking the lead on food with a teen is wonderful. Why? Because they're growing, they're usually quite hungry, and they all like good food, and they all want someone to take care of them this way. <laughs> and so exploit this need so you can t- stay close as well. Uh, teens uh, have a lot more autonomy. Uh, they will come home for food if there is a provider and, and food available for them, someone taking care of them. Uh, they still long for that. And it's a wonderful way to stay close when so much divides you. I had my, uh, my daughters in university and she's quite close by and so but she lives on campus and she wants to have that autonomy but i'll get this call sometimes uh, the other night it was 10:30 at night and she says mom can we go t- and get a lavender latte yeah. there's this lavender latte she's found at one of the stores at the, one of the coffee shops and they're open like all hours like till two o'clock three o'clock in the morning it's it's geared towards students and so I'm in my pajamas. I'm about ready to go to bed. I do not want to leave my house at 1030 at night to go get a lavender latte. But I'm like, this isn't about a lavender latte. This isn't about that at all. This is about, I don't know what, but I better get out of my pajamas and get into the car and get down there to pick her up and go for a lavender latte so that she, we can connect and she can express whatever it is that needs to be expressed. Maybe she's just lonely. Maybe it's nothing big, but, uh, you know, and that's the thing when we say to people, it's not like we're going to go for a coffee. Like we've been, we can't drink coffee or tea by ourselves. Hey, let's go for a coffee. Nobody needs to drink coffee with somebody in the sense of the benefits of coffee and caffeine. The whole idea of let's go for coffee means let's connect. I haven't seen you. I want to chat. I miss you. It's an invitation, but we say, let's go for coffee. (laughs) Not about the coffee. It's not about the lavender latte, people. Your teenagers can't say, I still need you. Yes. <laughs> I can speak from experience yeah. with that one as well. I still remember being a teen, and that was the only way to get me back food. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Like a fly to the light. Just, yeah. I'm coming. Yeah. 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 You can't say to your teenager, oh, come on, give me a hug. Yeah. I miss you. Where's my little girl? Just, They'll be yeah, like, yeah. oh, get away from me, woman. You're too smothering. I'm trying to grow up. What are you doing? But you say, hey, you know, I got pizza hanging around. You want to grab pizza? My daughter tonight, she's like, mom, if I take an earlier ferry to come over, uh, would would there be sushi? Of course yeah. there's sushi. <laughs> I, I text my husband, we're having sushi tonight. <laughs> Thank God for food. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I actually did this as part of the research. I look for animals that didn't need to be fed often. There's camels, there's bears, right? Four months or so plus they can mm -hmm. go without food and hibernation. Desert frogs. I found a, a something called the water moss, which is a microscopic uh, um, organism that lives on moss, 30 years without food and water. Like, can you imagine what that would look like for us? Oh, 30 years later. Oh, who are you? <laughs> Just like, I'm your mother. Yeah, it's been 30 years. Like, I think nature was very intentional in giving us very small mm -hmm. stomachs. Like, think about our body, our arms and our legs. They're very big. Our brain is probably even bigger than our gut. It gave us these tiny, tiny little stomachs. Don't you find that a little odd? Yeah. <laughs> like, makes hmm. I wonder what she was thinking here. She was thinking, you better come home and say hi once in a while. Let me feed you and take care of you. It's it's a way of keeping us close to each and other. And breastfeeding babies, how else would we know that they need to be held all the time? But what, that's our job to yeah, feed exactly. them. Okay, that's that we can get easily. Yeah. 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 And how beautiful the body orchestrates the breastfeeding, like from the temperature, from your, your milk flow, um, and as it changes, like babies who live in really cold areas, the, the babies, uh, the milk changes to have more fat content. The saliva passes back and, and the body says, the mother's body says, oh, okay, there's this stuff in the saliva, baby saliva. I better create the uh, proper immune antibodies in the next round of breast milk. And so there's this beautiful interplay. Um, and so, and not every mother can uh, breastfeed and that's very hard on mothers oftentimes, uh, but that's okay. You can still do connection. You can still hold your baby and you can still do all those pieces. But I think where it falls apart is that in utero, Hopefully the placenta is feeding the baby and then we have breastfeeding, which can be a little bit more tricky to get started with some kids. But then we have to take the lead. We then have to say, okay, I got to prepare food and then feed this child. And nature says, okay, here's your ramp. It, you're, you're slowly coming in. Now you got to take the lead. And then you get the three-year-old who says, I do it myself. No, I don't like peas anymore. I like my sandwich cut into fours now. And you're just like, who are you? Where did you come from? And it's the age of three, two to three is this age of autonomy where they, they go from being just simply fed to becoming an eater. And then we panic because now they have their own mind about stuff. And we're like, what's happened? Why aren't you so easy to be to feed you anymore? Who, who are you? What do you mean you don't like my meatloaf anymore? You still love my meatloaf. We're like, how did this happen? Well, Ah, you now have a child who is like fully autonomous. We should give them a little birthday mm. at age three. 
happy birthday to you you who have arrived because you've had good attachment now you've got your own mind your own wants your own wishes your own desires and you're combative as a result of it, you know of all this beautiful growth and development it's incredible this journey to becoming an eater and how we take for granted what a process this is we can still harness those attachment forces though with my eldest we used to do the daddy marketing yeah. he will refuse what's on his plate but if i offer it to daddy and daddy loves it oh okay then yeah. <laughs> i'm with my youngest who is two at the moment so, so i'm living this <laughs> we will have exactly the same things on yeah. our plates he will reject his climb on my lap and he literally goes Woo, mommy's food. And he loves it. And it's exactly the same. Yes, it isn't. Yeah, yeah. No, it's your food. It's empowered through love. And they'll feed you too. Like I had my 18-month-old. And you just see this ignition of this cascading care and these attachment instincts. 18 months of age, I'm feeding him an apple. He doesn't speak. He doesn't really say too much at all. And he's just starting to walk. I put apple into his mouth. He reaches out, takes the apple from his mouth because he doesn't want me to be left out i guess <laughs> puts yeah. it into my mouth i'm like okay we could do it this way too <laughs> but it's this it's you see he's so cared for he is so loved and this beautiful unleashing of caretaking instincts as uh represented through food it's just it's the magic it's the secret sauce uh to feeding at the same time, there's no frustration bigger than the frustration of the provider who's cooked this beautiful meal oh. that's rejected. Mm -hmm. Have you got any words of comfort mm -hmm. for that parent? Wow. Have I ever been there a hundred <laughs> times over? I think the key thing is, is that why are we so frustrated? Mm -hmm. Because it thwarts our provider instincts. We want to provide. It's also the work that's gone into it, the sacrifice that's gone into it, the financial issue, the worry about nutrition and how alarmed we are. We feel so responsible for keeping them well. We can't forget that we have our own set of emotions that is brought into this task of feeding someone. And so when they don't take us up on our offer, my goodness, does it ever set up a cascade of emotions inside of us? Um, and, and I think that the key thing, and I, and again, for as I reflect on myself as a parent and also what parents in my research told me, as well as developmental science, is that uh, this isn't a unique situation in the sense that our kids don't always follow or take us up on our offers. You know, I'll read you a nighttime story. It's time for bed. Let's brush your teeth. Let me help you with your homework. Like, this isn't exactly new. We've been dealing with resistance and opposition across the board. And so part of it is that we must keep in sight that relationship is key. A child has their own emotions and their own needs. Be curious, first of all, and work inside relationship. If you are start attaching your own resistance or your frustration or your alarm to this process, it digs in emotions with your child. And so stay in that place of caretaking. Your tummy says it's not hungry right now. That's okay. Uh, we're going to eat. It's okay. You eat what you need to at the table. We're all going to just stay here. You get on with it. You talk. It doesn't have to be just about the food. In your head, you're thinking, okay, what's going on? Are they sick? Have they had a bad day? Is there some tension at the table that I need to pay attention to? It, there's another practical side, which is how am I going to get, you know, the food if this child needs food? 
uh, into them later? Is it going to be a snack that I serve? Do I serve this dinner later as I read a book with them? What does that look like? How am I going to take the lead on this? I've seen all sorts of different circumstances this way. I've seen kids who, for emotional reasons, will not eat at the table. And yet the parent will sit down nine o'clock at night. I know it's maybe not the time you want to be eating. Maybe it's not even great for their body to be eating at this time. But it's the time that it gets in. It's a temporary fix to the fact that this child can't eat at a table with you. You sit down eight or nine o'clock at night. You have that same meal together. I remember a family doing this and it just slowly brought their child back into relationship to the others at the table because they went to where it worked and then they fostered relationship and then brought mm -hmm. them back into the family. There was a lot of things going on for that child relationally at that table that he just couldn't stand to be there. It wasn't about the food. So I, I think be curious, be curious about what you're seeing. Try to make sense of it. Don't react. It is frustrating. You'll find a way. Just be patient. Just like any feeling as well, we want them to find their hunger. If they need to feel sad, can't just say, okay, that happened, feel your sadness. It's not going to happen. We have to set everything up so we can get there, but they have to kind of fall into it themselves at the edge. So it's just about yeah. getting to getting them to that place where if they fall, great, but if they don't, keep the environment so that when they're ready, they can fall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got to preserve the context. That's so important because you've got to come back to that over and over and over again. And so if every time you come to the context here where your feeding and eating happens, it's laden with arguments and disagreements. Like you're going to have a hard time. I had a friend once, uh, her husband passed away. She had two children. Obviously very difficult for the family, but coming to the table was, was no one could bear it. There was dad's place. He wasn't there. I said, well, don't push it. Like, don't, it doesn't have to be happening there. Where does it work? Does it work when you're outside of the house? If you went out and ate somewhere at takeout? Yeah, that works. Does it work if you get takeout and eat at a picnic table or something closer to home or in the backyard? Yeah, that works. She said, it's funny. It also works when we eat on the couch and we don't eat at the table. Okay, then go to the places where the emotions aren't too intense that you can feel your hunger and be together and that the sadness doesn't overwhelm you. How could the sadness not? So just back up, say, okay, what do I need to do to take the lead here? What's going on? How can I help this child? It's not all about us, that's for sure. It's not all about us. It's about what's also happening inside of that child uh, and what they need from us to feel taken care of. I'm gonna bring in the big S word, screens. When we were preparing for this episode, yeah, you know where it's going. When we were preparing for this episode, we disagreed on this. Uh, Joe was like, when my kids eat in front of a screen, the note to myself in my head is, this is a one-off. We're not going to make a habit of it. So you feel the danger in it, don't you? And to me, sometimes it's like, oh my God, this is the only way they will eat. I can get that food into them before leaving the house. And I will do it in front of a screen if that's what needs to happen. I'm also someone who is really bad at eating by myself. I'm someone who was fed by my grandma when I was a little girl to an endless story of a hoglet and a piglet that my grandma was telling me and making up every time. And the hoglet and a piglet would go on an adventure and then they would come home to their mothers and always happen to have exactly the same food as I was having. So that was her marketing 
of the food. And now I, I just can't eat by myself. The phone comes out, the screen needs to come out. It's just too, it's just too overwhelming, that plate of food. And that's what I project probably on my kids, that that's at the moment is too overwhelming for them to eat without a screen, unless obviously our presence works the trick. But if it doesn't, if it's not enough, could you speak about that when it's too vulnerable to eat? What to do? Oh, well, my goodness, I should have done a chapter on screens is what yeah. I'm realizing in this book. I didn't do a chapter on this. I should write this and then just <laughs> give it away, this chapter. Oh, this is a great question. So number one, why I think we eat with a screen or with music or a TV on is there's, again, this is a myth. Okay. So, oh, it's so horrible. People are eating with screens on and stuff. I'm like, hmm, mm -hmm. why do we do it? I'm curious. The research on loneliness suggests that the people we have the hardest time keeping nutrition and food in are actually our elderly because a lot of them are on their own eating up by themselves. So they did a study where they put a mirror in front of them and so they could see themselves. They found that the appetite, the, the amount of food they ate increased when they had a physical presence. It was theirs. It was a mirror. And then I thought, hmm putting the radio on or the TV on, it's about connection. Mm -hmm. It's depersonalized, but it's connection. We want the sounds of other people. We want mm -hmm. the sounds of connection. The times that I slept the best was not in a quiet house. It's when my parents had my relatives over and there was a raucous going on, like there was a party going on in the kitchen. I remember falling to sleep on those nights, the most rested because I could hear the sound of everybody I was attached to. The sounds of our loved ones is not a problem. We are now searching because we are eating more on our own for the sounds of anybody and trying to attach that way. I think so that I think is what's going on. As you talk, I, I like when I raised my kids and they're my eldest is 20 and then the youngest is 18. I could have turned on the TV, I guess, but I didn't have cell phones, iPads. I really just didn't pay too much attention. They slowly came in. I was a very late adopter. Now I'm now I use it all the time. But I didn't have these things to get food into my kids. I never had the temptation. I had to figure it out. That's what you've been robbed of. In all honesty, that's what you've been robbed of, is that you figuring it out as a provider. What is going on? How am I going to do this? This is so frustrating. Do I play a game? Do I, you know, sit down with them? I'm not sitting down with them. We're not eating the same food. We're not eating family style. I'm not feeding them at the wrong time. Like, they're sick. When we go to these quick fixes, you're robbed of insight into your child. Sometimes you've made a mistake. You're trying to do too many things and hurrying, hurrying out the, the morning, you know, and, and getting them ready. Sometimes you haven't had enough connection time in the morning. Like, warm it up a little bit. It's not, I had a family who had a four-year-old. It's like, okay, hurry up, get up, get your shoes on, get dressed. Come on, let's go down. I'm just like, you wake up your four-year-old like that? That's not going to work. <laughs> they need to be collected. They need a story. They need a hug. They need a little kiss or something before they're going to work and get ready for you to go to face daycare all day. How about a hello? Yeah, and then the child wants to move for you. So what are you missing when you use screens? What are you missing when you say, ah, it's a quick fix is what it is. And so that quick fix robs you of knowledge and insight and also the growth as a parent to try to figure out 
how am I going to make this work, this dance of relationship work? It's interesting what they say on a whole other side about feeding kids in front of screens. I was talking to a feeding a specialist who fixes like really severe feeding issues in kids. And she said that the pattern and the trend towards putting younger and younger kids in front of screens while eating, they now have to go back in and repair the mechanics of eating. That unconscious eating in early ages, the kids are not programming or not getting wired up for eating, chewing, swallowing, they're losing their sensations and their awareness of it, especially at the early years, when you put a screen in front of them, they, there's an unconsciousness about the process of eating, which is absolutely alarming to me, uh, to even think of it that way. So there's a developmental physical piece that comes when you put screens in the way and there isn't that conscious wiring of how to eat. The thing about screens is it's depersonalized, you know, it's not you. The question I'd have for you, I'm not going to give a prescription to anybody about screens because you're going to do what you need to do. Um, and every family has their own story and their own challenges and their own reasons. If I was going through a really hard time or say I was going through some physical challenges or cancer treatment, I might put on a little show at the table so we could all be together and probably bear what might be difficult for me. I don't know. There's a story out there why a screen would be helpful to be all together around a table, uh, especially if food is really challenging. I don't know, so I'm not gonna give you a prescription, but what I will say is ask yourself the question, is does that screen interfere with the connection, getting to each other's faces, to the food, to understanding this? And what does it do to human vulnerability? It lessens it, but maybe you need to have less because there's some tricky situations at the table, but does it allow for relationship? Maybe you want to move it into more vulnerable territory. Well, screens might be in the way of that. So just play around with those two dynamics, relationship and vulnerability. And what is the screen doing in this? What is it robbing in the child? What is it robbing in me? Is it or is it facilitating? Is it helpful? And then make your mind up about screens. There's a time and a place for them. Um, is this the time and the place that you would choose? So it's almost what could have been in the place of the screen. Mm -hmm. It's like play. You put them in front of a screen, mm. what gets lost is play. It's like, well, it doesn't do any harm. Yeah, but it doesn't add to potential. The loss of potential is a loss. It is a lack. And that's the piece we don't get. We're like, oh, well, there isn't a problem. Yeah, but you're not seeing what you are not getting to because you've got something that's getting in the way, that's placating you, where you're a consumer, where you're not a creator. You're consuming, 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 but you're not in that creator emergent mode where you're individuating if we're just sitting back and just being uh, consuming and sometimes we just want to tune out have you got plans to, to write that chapter? i should now you've inspired me if i do i'm going to dedicate it to the two of you um i should have written more about screens oh, in there it just you. the topic is so big yeah. and we are using screens and it is a myth that needs to be looked at from both sides there is two sides to this coin would you not want an elderly who's on their own to listen to their favorite radio show? Whatever it might be. Of course you would. It's connection. We want them to be in connection. I'm sorry that it's depersonalized, but I'm not going to give out a prescription or platitudes that, oh, no, never screens. Let's understand why they're important or understand why someone's using it. What, is it, what does it represent about their needs? We can connect and have the screen on as well. Sometimes, if if we're not using it as a babysitter, mm -hmm. we could watch something and eat together. Mm -hmm. And that is connection as well. 
Oh yeah. Mm. I have, I have this uh, pizza oven. My husband got me for mother's day, of course. Right. Uh, gets me food things. And, uh, it's like, well, let's be honest. My pizza was really horrible and I really loved pizza. My husband, my kids are like, dad, please don't let her make pizza anymore. He's like, let's get her a pizza oven. So anyway, now I have the best pizza ever. But the reality is, is that, um, when I get around and we, we have uh, dinner parties with the pizza oven now and everybody makes their own pizza. And then one of my friends just puts on some music, like on a screen, like a YouTube or whatever it was. And it was Italian music to go along with the pizza. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this is the music we've been waiting for. It just elevated the whole experience. I'm just like, thank you. Oh, this is a wonderful idea. It just made it so joyous and happy. And so, yeah, you know, there's a place for all of this. Oh, that's lovely. Olga's got uh, a last question normally that we like to ask everyone. Sure. You won't be surprised to hear. And you've just mentioned play. What do you do for play, Deborah? Oh, I love this question, of course. Well, play, I love to play. There's many things that I love to play at. I love to move. I love to swim. I love my bike rides. I like to be in nature. I love to play with my dogs. I love to play with other adults. I love to play with ideas. I love to play music. I love to listen to music. Uh, I love play. I just uh, don't oftentimes have enough uh, time for for my play. But no, I am. I'm always there for a laugh. Uh, I'm always there for um, a good time. I love music, though. I would say that's probably the closest to my heart. Music is exquisite in terms of the emotions that it can move out of me and play. It's uh, it is definitely my therapy. And it can even rescue a pizza. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly can. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Deborah. It's so lovely to meet you, Joe and Olga. Thank you for listening. It was an absolute delight to talk to Deborah. If you liked the episode, please give us a rating and a follow on the platform where you're listening. That'll really help us. You can find the video clips from the interview as well as the full transcript and a link to Deborah's work on the podcast on our website www.thecarryinstinct.com. If you'd like to find out who our next guest is and have a chance to ask them a question, we invite you to sign up on our website as well. Thank you and until the next time!